The following program, The Kitchen Table Progressives, is sponsored by The Kitchen Table Progressives and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management. This is Paul Richardson. You're listening to a special extended New Year's Eve edition of Kitchen Table Progressive, celebrating the foundations of American music. Good afternoon, good evening. And some of you are wondering, hey, isn't that Debussy? Isn't he a a French Impressionist composer? What does that have to do with the foundations of American music? Well, it turns out a lot. Um, And I'll answer that question in in just a few minutes. But first, Happy New Year to you. And uh, welcome to a special extended three-hour uh, New Year's Eve edition of Kitchen Table Progressive. Uh, the family meeting radio program uh, is, is normally in this slot and will be. Uh, in, uh, but they are on an extended holiday uh, uh, hiatus uh, this week and the next two weeks. So they will be returning to uh, regularly scheduled live programming on January 21st. Uh, in the meantime, you have 
me for this evening, New Year's Eve. Good New New Year's Eve to you, and Happy New Year. And then next week and the following week, a very special programming coming up. Uh, I'm not at liberty to discuss the details, but uh, I assure you it will be very interesting indeed. So make sure you tune in uh, to that. And uh, but for uh, this evening's programming is a focus on the foundations of American music, and we started with a, a piece by uh, the French impressionist composer Claude Debussy, who wrote this piece called Gollywog's Cakewalk. In 1908, it was the sixth of a suite called The Children's Corner, the sixth uh, piece in a suite called The Children's Corner. And the interesting part, so what, what is Gollywog's Cakewalk and why is it important? Because Cakewalk was one of the first uh, purely American forms of music. Uh, it comes from the plantation. Uh, the plantation, uh, what is a cakewalk? Well, essentially, it's a dance contest. It was a dance contest developed by slaves on the plantations. And uh, they had some interesting features, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a second. Um, gollywog. A gollywog was um, this doll they had in France. It was kind of a, a, a black doll, a, a kind of a a black child i don't know what i've i think i've seen a picture of one but debussy being uh the french impressionist composer probably had been to the united states uh once at least once probably to new orleans and became aware of this of this cakewalk form one of the things you notice in that piece is this da 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 this rhythm all continually throughout the piece da 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 and that's what a cakewalk is. You, you've heard this before. Uh, we've all heard the dun 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 dun, right? That's a that's a cakewalk setup. And what a cakewalk was a line dance where you had two lines facing each other that were, you know, male male female male female, and then the two lines you would be one would line up across from one's partner, and so the the, the couple at the head of the line one was on one line and one was on the other line. And when they got the setup, dun 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 dun, you see the the, the rhythm, da 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 da. It's repeated over and over and over again, and that's it's the first form of syncopation. This started in the eighteen like eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, and so the couple that was at the head of the line, one was in one of the lines and one was in the other side of the line, they would come together and then they would dance down the middle between the two lines and the music was this probably uh, not on piano uh, not on the plantation but probably on the plantation they, they had a, a fiddle and some form of a banjo that kept the, the beat regular and the other dancers would clap to the beat and the dancers would do this cakewalk which was a high stepping uh, super high step and sway back, leaning way back, getting their, getting their, uh, you might see, remember the drum major in a, in a, in a marching band, how he marches down the field with his head way back and is marching really high. That's kind of comes from cakewalk too. And it's all syncopated rhythm. And the, what they were doing, believe it or not, is the slaves were making fun of their white masters who they thought what the, the what they watch watch observe their 
white mass was doing was was traditional ballroom marches where they marched and it was really square and stiff and not fun looking at all. So they were making fun of them. And but if you're a slave and you're going to make fun of your master, you better do it to such a degree that no, your master doesn't really notice that you're making fun of him. <laughs> and the prize was a cake. The couple that won, so you the, the couple would go up and down the line, and they would get in their their, their best regalia. You know, they would uh, in their finest clothing that they could find, very colorful clothing, and they they could make uh, uh, clothing on the plantation. And this took place on Saturday nights because on the plantations there was no work on Sunday, uh, so they had Saturday night, and that's where we get our Saturday night fish fries and our Saturday night off, and because uh, there's church on Sunday and no work, so. You go up and down the line until uh, your chorus is over, and then you go to the back of the line, and da dun da dun 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 The next couple is at the head of the line, they take over, and they start, and they do their part up and down, and they try to outdo the first couple, and so on and so on. Uh, and then, of course, this is where it leads to the, uh, the phrase, that takes the cake, is, uh, is the phrase that comes from that, you know. We thought, I mean, I learned what a cakewalk was. I thought it was, we had it at our school fair. It was, you, you, it was kind of like a musical chairs. In fact, in the, they had in the gym uh, the, the 26 letters of the alphabet. And if you bought a ticket to the cakewalk, you get on one of the letters and they play the music and you walk around in the circle and then they stop the music and whatever letter you ended up on, then they would draw a letter out of the hat and it was W. And who was ever on W, well, you win the cake. But you didn't have to dance. You didn't have to do anything. It wasn't a dance like this was. So this is what the predominant rhythm was for the cakewalk. And this is what Debussy was observing. This was his impression of it. And he obviously was aware that it was uh, the black slaves on the, on the plantations that, uh, that developed this. Um, but it became wildly, wildly popular amongst the amongst, amongst the white people. They, oh, this is great! This look what they came up with, and so they started uh, doing this too. And it was the uh, predominant form of dance throughout the 19th century. It was the most popular dance. Now, um, uh, the the um, other thing that was taking place at the time was the development of what were called minstrel shows. Now, this started in 1828 when a man uh, by the name of Thomas Dartmouth Rice, who was also known as Thomas Daddy Rice, uh, he was on one of the plantations, and one of the stable workers, uh, a black stable worker, did this little dance for him, and he said, he kind of said, something like jump down, turn around, and do just so, and every time I Every time I turn around, I jump Jim Crow. And Thomas Daddy Rice had uh, an idea. He thought this was pretty clever, pretty uh, entertaining. And so Thomas Daddy Rice decided to form what were called minstrel shows. And it was called the Jim Crow Show. And the Jim Crow Show was the first variety shows that we had in this country. It involved dance, humor, acrobatics, the, the, and, and it became very popular also, along with cakewalk dancing that uh, was being developed at the time. 
and there were actually shows that went around. Uh, a, a man by the Dan- by the name of Daniel Emmett came uh, later, uh, about ten years later, and developed the Virginia Minstrel Players, which was the largest minstrel company. It had about three hundred players in it, which means that they could send around probably, uh, you know, if there were a dozen, if if there were a dozen uh, players in each show, they could put uh, twenty five of them on the road. It was a very very popular thing to do to travel around and, and make these, um, do the, do these, uh, acts. And the thrust of a, of a, of a minstrel show, a Jim Crow show was first, there was Jim Crow who Jim Crow was kind of a, a country bumpkin, kind of a stumbling, bumbling, real likable, honest guy, uh, who, and he had a friend and his friend was, uh, a guy by the name of Zip Coon and Zip Coon was a city slicker. And Zip Coon was always trying to outslicker, outslicker Jim Crow, but his his all of his all of his pranks and all of his gags always backfired on him. And Jim Crow ever never really knew that he was that he that that he was uh, trying to prank him. Uh, so it would always backfire on on old uh, Zip Coon, and uh, so that was the gist of the show. So there was humor. Uh, just what we've seen on American variety shows, this is what eventually became vaudeville uh, beginning in the 1880s. But vaudeville was for white people, uh, pretty much. Uh, the only, uh, and by the way, these, these minstrel shows had white people and black people in them, white players and black players, but they all wore blackface. Uh, even the black players wore blackface because obviously not all people of color, they don't have the same uh, hue of color. So they wanted black. They would use coal, uh, coal stain or coal polish, shoe polish or whatever they want, you want to call it. They all wore the same thing. And this was, this was, American, uh, this was American humor of the 19th century. Um, vaudeville was white people, and, but there was one... Um, actor and his name was uh, Burt Williams who uh, joined the Sigfield Follies in 1912 he was the highest paid uh, he was the highest paid uh, minstrel or vaudeville actor ever uh, making about $25,000 a week which is pretty good dough then a pretty good dough now actually uh, he was very highly paid and he's very popular uh, very talented and funny um uh, a performer uh, in every uh, uh, every which way, and there's um, th- there was a, a story, a kind of a, a humorous story about uh, Jim Crow, or sorry, uh, not Jim Crow, uh, Burt Williams and W. C. Fields uh, went into a bar, and W. C. Fields said, uh, oh, "Give me a scotch and soda there," and uh, the bartender gave him a scotch and soda. Said that'd be that'd be fifty cents, please. And uh, and W.C. Fields gave him the fifty cents. And, and Bert Williams said, "You know, hey, that looks pretty good. I, I'll, I'll take one. I, let me have a, a scotch and soda." And the bartender served one. and said, "That's five dollars, please." And Bert Williams said, oh, five dollars, huh? Thanks. I'll take ten. And he came out with a fifty dollar bill, which was uh, quite a bit of money in those days. So uh, Bert Williams was a famous. Uh, a, a very very popular, uh, I guess it would be a show actor. It was a, a vaudeville and minstrel actor, uh, but this was all developed out of Cakewalk, 
the da 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 and coming up here in just a minute or two, we're going to hear the um, the most popular cakewalk uh, uh, song of the 19th century was called At a Georgia Camp Meeting. Now, this was written by Daniel L. L. Quinn, who was a white man, and the lyrics are not anything that we'd uh, consider to be acceptable racially now, um, but the music is certainly... Everybody knew this particular uh, this particular piece, and it was uh, it was a very popular, the most popular by far, the most popular cakewalk uh, song of the of the nineteenth century, and used uh, many many times for such cakewalk events. And uh, like I said, uh, as as it, it would it was developed by. Slaves on the plantation caught on into white society uh, very readily. Everybody liked this dance contest, and nobody. After a while, nobody realized that it was. In fact, I don't think anybody anybody realized that the slaves were making fun of the master's very stiff ballroom dancing at all. Um, but uh, that was the that was that was the essence of it. Uh, it grew. And became popular, and then developed cakewalk developed into some other forms, um, and ragtime would have been the next form. But again, this da 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 you'll hear it in the melody, and then the half the halftime is da 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 another syncopated rhythm, and syncopated just means the beat skips. Syncope means is something like if you have if you have a heart skip your heart beats uh, skips a beat that's called syncope. So you have to have a regular rhythm behind uh, to which so you can know what the syncopation sounds like. In other words, you have to have a regular uh, clapping beat that uh, shows or, or illustrates where the syncopation is, uh, unless it's something that's very now. These are this syncopation is something we're very very used to, and this doesn't in our culture. Although there's not as much syncopation in modern popular music anymore as there used to be uh, in jazz. I mean, we have the boom, ba, do, do, ba, do, ba, do, do, ba. That's your rock beat. But that's not syncopation. That really, that's straight ahead. That's pretty ahead. Straight of marching. And here it is, Georgia Camp Meeting.
a Georgia camp meeting by Daniel L. Quinn. Uh, that's uh, the, the example, the most prime example of uh, cakewalk. Um, and I wanted to mention, uh, by the way, that uh, our phone lines are open, and I'm doing this presentation for interest, hopefully, uh, interest take, but you are welcome to call and talk about anything that's on your mind uh, for the new year. Uh, what you may have uh, want to talk about from 2023 or what you're hoping f for in 2024. Um, 2023 had some very interesting developments with regard to politics. And, of course, uh, you're always welcome to call about politics uh, here. And the number here, by the way, is 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278-773-763-WCPT. And the WCPT is 9278-773-763-9278. Uh, we can talk politics. We can talk uh, ex New Year's wishes, New Year's hopes, New Year's dreams, good riddance to 2023, things you'd like to see go away, things you'd like to uh, see, uh, things you'd like to see in 2024 that we maybe didn't see in, in the... Um, in 2023, uh, coming up, I know I know uh, there are some th things or people, in, especially in politics, I'd like to see disappear. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> all of that's on the table. So um, in, in the meantime, I'll continue talking about uh, the foundations of American music. Um, so uh, I, I hope you were able to hear it in that particular uh, piece uh, at a Georgia camp meeting. The da 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 bum, da 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 da. That's the rhythm. That's the cakewalk rhythm. And like I said, there's the you've all heard the da 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 da. Right. That's the cakewalk setup. So this is where it doesn't sound like a particularly earth shattering to our to our ears now because we're used to it. But back in, you know, 150 years ago, 100 or more, we're to, uh, more than 150 years, almost 200 years ago, when you think about it, uh, if, this is, if this is 2024, uh, you know, 1828 is when th this began. So this, we, we think late 1820s to early 1830s, it was almost 200 years ago. Um, this kind of syncopation was getting started. And... Um, the other thing that uh, was happening, although there were some different branches of music, and, and uh, by the way, I want to say that in terms of what's considered uh, true American music, every aspect of what is cons what I would consider, and I think most musicologists would consider to be purely American music, was developed by black people, was developed by black people in this country. Now, I've had people say, well, what about bluegrass and stuff like, okay, well, yeah, there are American forms, but they're not purely American forms. Bluegrass actually comes from, uh, is, it actually comes, comes from uh, Irish folk music, uh, probably Irish and Scottish, but more Irish than Scottish folk music. Um, so, yeah, bluegrass, uh, and, and it's, 
it, there are things about bluegrass that are still very much in the there's nothing uh, different about the scale. It's still a major scale and minor scale. Whereas uh, the the blacks were starting to do things that were developed into blues. Black American music was, uh, and I, 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 can't, I can't play it because I don't have an instrument here <laughs> right at my fingertips, but uh, playing what is called the pentatonic scale, and essentially, the pentatonic scale, if you have a piano, uh, if you just play on all the black notes, that's the pentatonic scale. You can make, it's almost like you can't make a mistake. Uh, and if you start on an E-flat, if you make that your, your main note, then that's the, uh, that is the form of the pentatonic minor blues scale, or the minor, the minor pentatonic scale, not quite the blues yet. Yeah, there's one note that needs to be put in there, but if you just play on the black notes of the piano, if you play uh, on other parts of it, it can sound sort of Asian. Uh, maybe uh, Javanese or something like that. Um, but if you start on the E flat and just play all the black notes and keep make E flat your, your starting note, that's the pentatonic scale, which is what the blues scale is based on. So that was what was starting to happen. Although, as you could tell in this that last piece, there wasn't anything bluesy about it. Um, it was still uh, the it was the rhythmic qualities of it that were more the uh, the aspect than anything harmonic yet. Um, as as time went on. Um, uh, the developments in 19th century music went to another direction. And uh, that became known as ragtime. So ragtime was similar to cakewalk. It came out of cakewalk. Uh, but ragtime was had more options to it. There were, there were more... Um, uh, it wasn't... So, if you know what I mean, the, this constant cakewalk movement, da 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 just like was in the WCPs, uh, you know, it, it gets kind of, maybe it gets a little bit old. It gets, it's too repetitive. So ragtime had, um, uh, it, there were more variances in terms of syncopation. And, of course, the king of ragtime was Scott Joplin. Um, Scott Joplin was born in Texas, uh, and uh, I, I don't know if Joplin, Missouri, is that named? I don't know if that's named after Scott Joplin or not. But Scott Joplin was a, oh, you know, he played piano in, a, in barrel houses and taverns, um, and he wrote, oh, volumes, volumes of, I've got them all, I think the CD volumes that I have uh, of Scott Joplin's The Total Works is four volumes, so I don't know. I haven't, I haven't ever counted how many that is. Um, uh, there, were, there were some popular ones that you probably will recognize. We're going to hear one up, coming up here in a minute. But some of them you, we would know would be The Entertainer. Remember that? That was... Um, that was... Uh, from the movie The Sting made that popular. Uh, although the, the Sting was take, took place in the 30s. 
I suppose that piece was, the, the entertainer was still popular in the 30s, but Scott Joplin's era was really the uh, from about, oh, well, the 1890s. Scott Joplin went to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and introduced, uh, quite broadly, introduced his ragtime pieces there. They were very, very popular. Um, but he had been playing them around in the barrel houses and, and taverns. Uh, around around the um, the middle part of the country, the mid the mid part of the country, and uh, it, it caught on quite well. Uh, so uh, it, it was exposed um, at the Chicago World's Fair, and and a very popular form of music. The blues was coming along um, with other. Uh, Composers, musicians such as W.C. Handy was probably is considered probably the father of the blues. Um, and uh, next hour we'll be talking uh, uh, about not entirely the blues, but there's there was some branching off that took place very very um, uh, quite a few branches came out of um, the cakewalk rhythm and syncopation. And then the ragtime, which, by the way, was called it was first it was called ragged time uh, because the syncopation was considered to be ragged sounding. It was kind of jangling and off. So uh, it was shortened to ragtime while cakewalk cakewalk continued to be popular as a dance because cakewalk was still a dance form. It was still a dance contest. Uh, that was still, but ragtime was not used. I can't say this definitively; it was never used in dance contests. But I happened to see that um, uh, another particular song was. Uh, let's see, was mistakenly. Uh, I, I have to get my thought on this one, but uh, yeah, there were mistake. was there are mistaken assignments about what was from Cakewalk and what was from Ragtime. Oh, I know what it was. Uh, yes, I read. I had read something that the the uh, author had written that the, uh, the Gollywogs Cakewalk that we heard earlier was written um, an impression an impression of Ragtime. That absolutely is not true. Uh, that would not have been accurate. No, Debussy was making an impression because Gollywog, and it was controversial that the Gollywog was this little black doll. It's controversial now that it it is obviously has racial overtones, but uh, the uh, WC was was probably simply referring to the fact that he was aware that it was blacks that came up with this this syncopated rhythm, and it would have been a strange rhythm for Debussy as well. Being, I mean, even as a French impressionist composer, not terribly uh, he he wouldn't have been using rhythms like that. Uh, so, um, again, uh, if you want to comment on this topic or anything else uh, today, our number is still open. That's 773-763-9278. Okay. Um, let's, let's take Bob first. Uh, uh, we got Bob on the phone who wants to say something. <laughs> Bob, how are you doing? Hey. 
Hey, well, how you doing? Yeah. Hey. Well, as always, uh, you're entertaining and educational, all wrapped into one. There. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. You, your 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 syncopation is perfect. Uh, I wish I wish my dad were still alive. He would uh, he would understand a lot of this. He started oh back when he was a kid in the early twenties and uh, became an excellent reed man. And uh, he uh, played in a band at the World's Fair of thirty three in Chicago. And when he was in the army, he was uh, selected as one of the musicians that went on tour with the war bond drive in 42 and three. So, uh, so I do have, you know, some history of that in the family. And sure. personally, don't ask, don't ask me why this is, but I, I seem to have gotten stuck in the, uh, say 1925 to 35 era, uh, jazz dance band type music is kind right. of my well, favorite. Be, yeah, that would be that would be Dixieland. And stay tuned in the third hour because the third hour will be featuring Dixieland and these will be recordings by a Dixieland band that my dad played in and he's in, on these recordings. Uh, he played in back in Detroit. Uh, it's exactly from that era. In fact, the songs that I have queued up to play are from 1925 and 1926. So um, stick around for that. Dixieland, of course, an outgrowth of... That's what I meant. There were so many uh, branches that that uh, stemmed off of Cakewalk, then Ragtime, then Blues, then Dixieland, and Boogie Woogie. And I'll, the second hour, I'm going to be talking about Boogie Woogie. So, uh, yeah, it all, it all just... This is all American music. This is all we, oh, yeah. we have to do. We have to recognize that American music, the the contribution that black people have made to this country has been priceless, invaluable, and innumerable. There's just so much of it. I, it you would couldn't just have a PhD on on it. it it's a whole, whole field of study that we have hundreds of PhDs on, on it. It's it's so it's so vast. But you're right. Um, that's a great era. Yeah, I wish I would. Unfortunately, they didn't hold up. They fell apart. Uh, it, after he came back from the war, he had this machine where he could record his own music. Mm-hmm. And, and he did some great uh, uh, stuff on his clarinet and saxophone uh, that uh, would have been priceless, at least with the family to have if it, if if it hadn't all fallen apart, you know. Right. But, uh, right. But well, it was hey, nice um, to hear it when you did. Right. So, uh, Bob, we have a, we're going to have a little, uh, we have a little fun thing going on. Um, I'm here with my friend Liz and she wants, she, we've had some trivia questions that, would you like to try our hand at two or three of them? I probably can't answer them, but I'll try <laughs> I can't answer them either, but let's let's turn it over to Liz. We have a, just we just a few minutes. Uh, well, we'll just tr- let's just try one of them. Uh, uh, let's just try one because we got a break coming up in about a minute. Okay. Okay. Hey, Bob. I have Hello. a question for you. It's true or false? Okay. Eighth played croquet while Anne Boleyn was executed. True or false? Uh, 
Well, knowing what little I do know about that era and the way he was, I would almost give that a true. Is that your final answer? Well, the only, the only reason I would think that he wouldn't is they didn't have croquet at the time. <laughs> well, Bob, so it's gonna... false because he was playing tennis. Oh, oh, what a racket that was. Okay, well, <laughs> hey, I can't win them all. Nope, I could ask another one if you want. Yeah, thank you very much, Bob. We, got, we have to go to this break, and we'll be back with some more calls. This is the Scott Joplin Maple Leaf Rag. Thanks, Bob. Scott Joplin's most popular rag, uh, the Maple Leaf rag. Okay, so let's get back to the calls. I see on the line now, I, I don't have to talk out of school because the hosts of the uh, the mystery show for next week, uh, Karen and Anita, are on the line. Ladies, are you there? Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. You're doing a fantastic job. I mean, that's so, that was so fascinating. Seriously. <laughs> Oh, this is it, it. It really is, and it's it's. Um, you know, Anita and I were talking. Um, you know, while we we're on hold, um, just how necessary um, this kind of history is, um, and it is not taught 
we, you know, as no. Caucasians in this country, we can all speak to the fact that our history taught in our public school system growing up um, was more or less completely whitewashed. Um, and then we were so, to, which reminded us about what Nikki Haley did. I don't know, I don't know if you saw that. I'm sure you did. It was all over the place. When somebody asked her about um, what the Civil War, the causes of the Civil War were, and she could not answer it honestly. She, she was educated and she couldn't because that would upset the white supremacist Republican base. And that's pretty, it's just pathetic. Well, there are good people on both sides, you know. Uh, it's like, yeah. 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 Well, you know, well, I mean, actually, when I was in school, I can remember, you know, in, in the 60s, the Civil War in fourth grade, it was kind of. It was kind of taught like that. It was like, well, now, which side would you agree with? And I'm like, wait, that shouldn't yeah. be a question. The insurrectionists, <laughs> the 11 states. I should, what I, oh, well. Mm-hmm. And remember, in those days, I, I think I just checked. It was up through the late 70s. They used to have mm-hmm. the blue-gray game. Remember the, the football game, the college? Uh, yeah. And they, the, mm-hmm. the, gray, the gray team would play Dixie and all that. It was yeah. just like, What? I know. Oh, yeah. You know, it's we just really, have, you're right. We, we had slave day we, when we I was in high school. We need a better education. And, you know, everything that we do, uh, that we love as white music, all of our rock mm-hmm. and roll, it was all stolen. Yeah. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's really funny that the, yeah. you know, we wouldn't listen to blues when black Americans played it, but when the right. British came along and the British invasion, when they fed it back to us, you know, when it was, when it was, uh, um, uh, Led okay, Zeppelin, okay. Uh, Robert, well, it was Robert mm-hmm. Plant singing Muddy Waters back to us. We went, oh, now sure. well, we liked it, right? It's like, well, yeah, it's, sure. it's similar but, to like Eminem. There's a bunch of, you know, all these white kids running around imitating Eminem. You know, before yeah. that, you know, rap and hip hop was looked down on. I mean, people just were, you know, uh, censoring it, basically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't yeah. being played. And then you had Eminem and you had... Little white boys running around, you know. It gave, yeah, it gave permission, you know, somehow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ladies, Just tell, us, tell, us about the, uh, yeah. tell us about the podcast and, and what's going to happen or, or what's going on with the in, in next week. So, well, the, we what's have. What's the name of the show? All right. So, Google. the name, yeah, so our, go ahead and need the podcast. Google Politics, T R U B L U Politics Podcast. And we just dropped our last, um, uh, we just dropped it today, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, for the paid Patreons, we do have a Patreon page, um, and so it's our fourth episode. This is our holiday episode. It went a little bit longer, um, mm-hmm. a lot of mocking of the GOP um, and, yeah. you know, sounding sounding the warnings for um, what's to come. Um, and Trump and mm-hmm. that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, basically, Paul, what um, we are doing, the reason that we started um, – the podcast now was we wanted to do it in plenty of time um, for the 2024 election. So about a year out. Right. And so just um, having conversations, you know, Anita and I are frequent callers into Stephanie Miller, who was on uh, at eight o'clock AM in Chicago here on WCPT and elsewhere. And um, so we were regular callers and we just started talking on the phone every day. And um, some of our conversations were pretty interesting, and we thought, you know what, this would be a good podcast. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, and um, we just said, this is the time to do it. it. 
Yeah. yeah. So it's just kind well, of two, the both of us just having conversations and um, forming conversations so that maybe people, the listeners are going to be able to hear those conversations and then know how to speak to their families and friends about exactly. the issues that are going on. And the, I mean, what it sounds hyperbolic, but I mean, basically democracy is on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, yeah, I, I, so. I, I don't know if you're aware of it. When I when I started this this program uh, in July, uh, my broadcast partner, uh, Joyce, uh, mm-hmm. didn't know it, but uh, she was being very, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Uh, Joyce's a stage four mm-hmm. lung cancer, which she, she never, mm-hmm. she never smoked or anything, but it was already metastasized into her bones. And, oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. jo- Joyce, Joyce was with the Tom Hartman program and. After two months, she left me, and I was like, "Well, wait, wait a minute. What? Now I'm on my own." <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and I thought, well, you know, am I going to keep the program? You know, I and and then I thought, well, wait a minute, 2024. This is going to be the mm-hmm. best time to have a program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, a political program. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's why I um, I thought, yeah, just and it was a little a little hairy getting going for me. Um, you know, flying solo for a while, but hey, once you do a couple of three hours, well, no, you were you sound great, Paul. Yeah, and you're hit, you're, you're definitely hit your stride, and you just got a great radio voice too, by the way. Thank you, oh, um, thank you very much. And also, Karen, being from Chicago, and there's going to be the Democratic conventions in Chicago, and I'm hoping to be able to visit her so we can do the podcast there live oh, from um okay. so i guess it wouldn't be a podcast then <laughs> no, it we'll have to do it live do it live so yeah, do yeah. It live. Um, okay yeah. well thank you ladies uh and uh don't thank be you, don't be a stranger on my show and let me i gotta get another call in here before the break but uh all right we'll be big fan. we're big fans you next weekend oh, Finally get to talk to you. okay thanks very much ladies okay have a okay. good one okay all right, thank you very much, um, uh, Jim. Uh, Jim, are you there? Happy, yeah, happy New Year, Paul. I, I was thinking. I've been to Kentucky Derby many times, and my late wife used to have a Derby party all the time. But from eighteen seventy-five to about nineteen oh two, seventeen black jockeys won that race. Isaac Murphy won it three times. Probably one of the greatest jockeys of all time. And the sad part about it was that they were banned from racing. And what, what, what made me think of it is Camp Town Races. Remember the song Camp Town Races? Yeah. And two, it, it, two, two was a, Stephen Foster wrote My Old Kentucky Home. And a few, he died in a New York uh, hotel room. He somehow he cut his throat with the shaving gear. Ended up at Bellevue Hospital, but his songs were being played on Broadway, and he didn't get a nickel for him, any of them. All right. And another, but uh, I thought of Camp Town Races, but then my favorite song <laughs> is Stew Ball. Have you heard of Stew Ball as a racehorse? Oh, Stew Ball as a racehorse. It was written in Ireland and anonymously in about 1875. It's been sung. John Baez sang it. Everybody sang it. I'd be a free man today if I'd have been on old stool ball. But uh, and my two favorite, uh, when I'm alone in a bar, are uh, Billy Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald are my favorites. Uh, you know, I like to play those songs that I do back. Sure. Anyway, thanks, great pal. Have a happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Happy New Year to you. 
Okay. Um, let me uh, let me get Steve at because uh, we're coming up and I want to finish something here in this hour. And Steve, I'll get you at the at the top of the next hour. Um, another uh, thing I want to talk about, finish off on ragtime here, is there used to be ragging contests, and these were yeah, cash prizes. Cash prizes, uh, and what the deal was was you had to show up, and the judges would give you a a piece like oh I don't know. Rubenstein's Melody in F or a, or a Stephen Foster song. And what you had to do was play a, a little bit of the song and then you had to start ragging on it, start playing it in ragtime. Well, there was a, a great um, a, a great ragtime champion by the name of George L. Cobb. And he was sitting in a popular New York restaurant called Risers uh, uh, and with a friend. Uh, Risers is a very large restaurant, had I think about six or eight dining rooms and a, and a big upright piano in, in each one. And a friend of, of Cobb's uh, said to him, "Not uh, he saw something that uh, the Cobb could not see. But he said, uh, so you think you can rag anything, huh? And Cobb said, uh, absolutely, I can rag anything. And as I said, his friend could see something over Cobb's shoulder that Cobb could not see. And he said, so do you think that... Uh, that you could rag Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C sharp minor. You know this one that goes dun 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 dun. You know the that sounds like a, a funeral march. Yeah, and uh, so uh, Cobb said absolutely. And so Cobb went over the piano. He thought for a moment, and then he started playing it, and. Uh, when he finished, what he did not see and who was standing at his shoulder was Sergei Rachmaninoff, who was in there in the restaurant having lunch. <laughs> and uh, uh, needless to say, uh, Cobb was quite, st- uh, quite startled that, uh, that Car- uh, he was there. And all Rachmaninoff said was, Nice melody, but the rhythm is all wrong. And do we have that one? There we are.
Pete Johnson with his classic Roland Pete and the Roland Pete boogie bass line along with the Roland Pete right hand roll. That's why it's called a Roland Pete. Great Pete Johnson. I think that's from 1946. Um, Pete Johnson, one of the one of the three great uh, boogie woogie piano players of America's great boogie woogie piano players, and will be featuring the others this hour. Uh, which would include Albert Ammons, Mead Lux Lewis, and of course, the great um, Clarence Pinetop Smith. But I uh, don't want to leave anybody on hold too long, so um, let's get right back to the phones. And we have Steve from the Gold Coast on. Steve, thanks for calling. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So I wanted to make a couple of points. One, with all due respect to the women that you had on, I mean, this idea that Eminem legitimized rap somehow. I mean, (laughs) it was a decade before that people were playing that on every high school and college campus in America. I mean, with all due respect, I think she's a decade late. Uh, I mean... Yeah, the, the people who were buying uh, that that genre of music and were putting millions of dollars in the pockets of artists and record companies were buying large white kids because that's who's mm-hmm. got the money and that's the the demographic that that buys most music. So that's the people that you want uh, when it comes to you know, buying or selling something. So I mean, again, I understand that, that people want to make a point, but uh, I think you know it's not difficult to do basic research on this. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then I also think that it's it's interesting. That how we, we've got a, we've melded various cultures to, to provide to actually produce these sorts of expressions, and it's it's great. I think it's, it says something about this country. Um, I, I would disagree somewhat again with this notion that that this is somehow a secret. I mean, if you took a music history class in the last fifty years, you pretty much know the African American impact on all of these genres of music. And so this idea that it's, I mean, yes, in 1960 or possibly in the early 70s, perhaps somebody was hiding it from you. But, I mean, if you're under the age of, say, 50, you pretty much are aware of this if you took a class in anything related to these topics. And, and, and the reality is, again, it's a hybrid of, of, of various cultures. So you have stylistically uh, a, a group of people who are offering something, but it's within the, the framework of Europe, the European language of music. So when, you, when the sheet music that you're, you're doing this on, it's European. All of the instruments are European. And the technology is European. And without the, without the phonograph, without the microphone, you know, we, it was impossible to make this available to the masses. So there, this is a melding of cultures, and I think that that's the important thing to emphasize, that there's a huge contribution on the part of everyone, as, as opposed to this kind of framing sometimes where it's, oh, no, this is ours and, you know, versus yours. No, it's all of ours. 
And, and that's the, the richness, I think, that is America. Well, yeah, it's, it's American. It's, it's uniquely American. Uh, these, these genres are uniquely American. And I'm speaking from a purely musical sense. Uh, there are other, for, for instance, we were, when we were looking at the cakewalk stuff, uh, that was, you know, uh, the African rhythm, uh, of syncopation imposed over, you know, essentially straight ahead European music. I mean, Georgia camp meeting is straight ahead European music. There's not, there's no, there's no blues. There's no, there's no, none of that influence in there at all. Uh, and then you look at. Yeah. As I fought, as I as I discovered, and I don't know if I had the damnedest time. Uh, and I mean, knowing how to play blues piano, picking up a harmonica, I couldn't tell. I couldn't make head or tail of it. And all I wanted to do was was play a little riff from a Led Zeppelin song. That, and I thought, what Robert Plant is not working that hard at playing this as hard as I am. And what I finally discovered is that okay. Blacks picked up a harmonica, a C harmonica. I wish I had one here, but the the thing that uh, uh, the thing that white people played "Polly Wally Doodle" all the day on, or "Skip to My Lou." Blacks said, "No, no, make your main note down here. Instead of playing a C harmonica in the key of C, you play a C harmonica in the key of G, and the next thing you know, you have blues." <laughs> so, it, they picked up a European instrument. Probably, I mean, I think the harmonica is France. Uh, and and they they heard it the way they heard it. I mean, so yeah, you're, it is a super a super a superimposition of cultures. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, I mean that's the, the richness that is American culture. And like I said, I I, I I I get more out of it when people discuss it in that context as opposed to the okay, it's it, it's ours versus theirs, or you know this this sort of thing. I mean, you know, I, I think. It's important to recognize the contribution of African Americans, and then you can go further than that. I mean, the, the the contribution of the Jewish American community in terms of popular music in America, I mean, is is undeniable. I mean, the, we're coming out of the holiday season. Many of the songs that you associate with, the, you know, the holidays and so forth, came from people who are in no way, shape, or form Christians. Uh, you know, but they they embraced the American identity and produced some of the greatest Christmas songs in the world. And including uh, songs like "White Christmas," which was only recently dethroned as the most popular Christmas song, in, you know, in, in America and in the West. And you know, so I, you know that exactly. You know, it, so yeah. It, again, it's, we're a rich tapestry of a lot of different people all playing off of one another, and I, and I think it's a wonderful thing to celebrate. And like I say, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with noting the fact that, that X culture made X, X contribution, um, yeah. uh, uh, but. I, I prefer to frame it in terms of again the tapestry that is uh, uh, the richness of American diversity. Sure, well, I, I think I think probably some of the problem is uh, again it's the distribution of wealth. You have, have you ever listened to the? I mean, how much BB King made on his records when he first started? That was nothing. He was making uh, nothing on them. He got paid almost nothing. And then, of course, you, you're right. Um, Muddy Waters sued Led Zeppelin uh, for infri- copyright infringement, and uh, I, I mean, Led Zeppelin had already made you know forty million dollars, and, and Muddy Waters got a hundred thousand uh, dollars. They basically oh yeah, stole I mean, his, the news, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. The, the music industry is, is up there with boxing as far as how corrupt it was <laughs> and, and in terms of the exploitation of the artist. <laughs> I've been in the music industry all my life. I I don't know if it's as high as boxing. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) well, I mean, I'm I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but I mean, you know, to to make a point. But yeah, I mean, God, the way that they exploited people, the way in which things got paid. I mean, literally, DJs got money in envelopes to play certain songs. You know, who knows what great artists we may have missed out on because somebody didn't have the money to pay, you know, enough people off to play them and therefore popularize the music, you know, so. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, it's, 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 I think it's better today, but again, today now with the advent of technology, you know, musicians, are, it used to be the case, you release an album and then you go on tour to promote it, and that's where you made your money was on the album. Today, people are making money on the things that they're selling on, uh, you know, online right. streaming. It's instead they're, they're having to go on uh, uh, to do concerts in order to actually, you know, pay the bills because, you know, they're making next to nothing from, you know, the, the, the streaming services. Yeah, well, they used to. That's what you had to do in 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 our era. I guess I think we're maybe relatively similar vintage. Is the bands had to go out on the road, and that's why they played two hundred and twenty five dates a year because they had to. That was they, they were traveling salesmen. They were selling their albums. Um, and you know, within the last five years, I have to say, Steve, I have fallen prey to the oldest trick in the book, which is uh, when the agent said we we didn't get paid. <laughs> Bull crap! Yeah. You got paid. We, yeah. yeah, we didn't get paid. You got paid. Yeah, that was that was just that's yeah. the oldest trick in the book. And then he said, "Yeah, well, you know what? Sometimes you got to do a, f- a few free ones to get your name out there." And I'm like, way too old to hear that one. I said, "No, uh, uh-uh. uh, sorry." Yeah. Anyway, uh, and, Steve, and that's, I mean, a, and that's uh, another issue. <laughs> if it did me like this, Matt, last point, which uh, you know, I, 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 this is where I sort of part ways with some of us on the left. You know, people who think that, you know, that basically uh, music should be socialized somehow and they, they should have free access to everybody else's work. And I'm like, you know, somebody has to pay the bills and has responsibilities just like you or your parents do. And this yeah. idea that you're entitled to what they produce for free. No, I'm sorry. We're not there. And there's a reason why we're not there. So stop trying to live off of other people's work for free. Yeah, sure. OK, Steve, uh, thanks. Let me get to let me get Thank to. You. Uh, let me get to Dave. Uh, Dave, are you still there? Yeah, still here. Yeah, still here. Happy and, New uh, Year, Dave. Hey, Happy New Year to you, New Year to you, Paul, and uh, all of the listeners. And uh, may we have a profitable and safe New Year too, and healthy. Um, yeah. Listening to when you guys are talking about the music and a couple of who was it just recently that had sued Ed Sheeran? And later lost. It was something for a tune or a note or something in his song, and and they thought they had they had uh, that he had stolen, you know, from their hit. Wait, who who is this again? Say it again. I, I missed. What Remember you said. that singer Ed Sheeran. He's a this English English singer, you know, and uh, oh, okay. he sang he, that song perfect and that, you know, he had that one and uh-huh. and I, he was in, I don't know. It was in, it was supposedly stolen from somebody? He, he no, not not the perfect song. There was a, a later now, a newer song and there was some either tune or whatever. And this other artist had claimed that he had, you know, pilfered their, you know, their had tune. And right. it, later on, it, it turned out that they lost. They were wrong. Well, you know, court, I, you know, yeah. Well, it, you know what? It depends on. And, and I don't know. I, I would <laughs> I'd like to also hear what Steve has to say about this, because uh, 
in my view, um, stealing songs, I think you pretty much have to steal the lyrics because the form Mm -hmm. and the chords are all this. I mean, when George Harrison got sued for My Sweet Lord um, uh, by, was it the Shondells? Whoever, not the Shondells, the uh, stealing the song, He's So Fine. Um, I just thought that was the most ridiculous. I mean, it's just, there's so many songs that sound the same, and they're all based on the same chords. Nobody stole anything, and and they don't sound, I think if you're stealing lyrics, if you're stealing parts of lyrics, Mm -hmm. uh, you can't, of course, you can't copyright the name of a song. So I'm not, I'm not very sympathetic, sort of as a musicologist to people, oh, you stole it. It's like, that's like saying you, um, you know, like they say in court. Uh, please tell us in your own words. And it's like I, I don't have my own words. I, I only have English words. Maybe some of these, some of these people that do the suing were has-beens, and they kind of just want to get, you know, they they had their claim to fame, and they kind of just want to get their uh, name in the news again. Well, you know, there was um, the, uh, a guy by the name, a guitarist by the name of uh, Mark Andes, who used to play with Spirit and also with JoJo Gunn. Uh, he sued Led Zeppelin over uh, Stairway to Heaven, saying that, you know, he came up with this this first guitar, you know, the beginning of the guitar thing, uh, which I, I don't want to sing it, but, you know, this is one of the things, it's a, it's a natural movement on the guitar. If you get in that position on the guitar... You start moving your fingers that way. It's a, it's kind of a natural thing that happens. So yeah. I, I'm not yeah, so sympathetic to the fact that yeah, for the first for the first few notes, what he wrote sounded kind of like Stairway to Heaven. It was no way. It was in no way, shape, or form the same product as Stairway to Heaven. Did you ever catch that? Speaking of Led Zeppelin, did you ever catch that when um, Hart performed at uh, Kennedy Center Honors for them? And I believe they did stereo. Oh man, they knocked it out. Like, Hart? Know, yeah. When they they did the honors for Led Zeppelin that time at the Kennedy Center. And uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think oh. it's probably on on uh, on uh, YouTube or something like that. But they they knocked it out. Boy, it was great. Oh, Hart. Yeah. Well, I, I all I know is that I used to rehearse at a studio um, uh, in Bellevue, Washington, here, and. Um, the, there was a band in the in the next in the studio next to us that we came out of there, and I said, "Geez, that, that those guys sound a lot like they're doing a heart song. They sound just like them." And the the manager of the place said, "That is them. That is Roger Fisher. That's them." I said, "Oh well, they do a pretty good job of them, right?" Yeah, the yeah. Uh, kind of reminds me when I was in the service at home on leave, and uh, we got back together, and we got talking. It was Christmas leave, and one of the guys they lived. It was in some little podunk town, you know, towards the south, I think it was. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he said he was in the local bar, and all of a sudden, you know, the band was playing, and these these dudes come walking in. And he said that it was Dr. Hook in the medicine yeah. Okay, sure. And he said that, you know, they asked him, why if we come and jam and do it? No, because they know who they were. He said, I got to see a Dr. Hook concert for free, he said, back then. But... Uh, and um, yeah, I'll uh, yeah, yeah. leave you on this one. Did you happen to watch? I think it was on last weekend on CNN. The thing on uh, 
about uh, Little Richard. No, I didn't. It was really good. And I had no idea how he was overlooked you know, for the awards, and he had been behind a lot of the the great singers we knew, like Elvis and others, with a lot of these songs. And, the, and it, he was late in his life before he finally got recognized. And it always kind of had hurt him from what I'd seen in that uh, mm. in that special on Little Richard. Mm. It yeah. was really, really good. You know, I, I suppose you could probably, you know, you know, do call up on the thing and get it, you know, um, you know, now with uh, either YouTubes or the, right. the other thing you do, talk into the thing and uh, play it again, you know. It was very good, though, very good. Well, listen, let me clear off. I'm sure there's others okay. I want to talk, so. Okay, and, uh, thank, have thanks, a Dave. Yep. And, you and bet. We chat next talk week. You soon. All right? Yeah, uh, be well.
the great Albert Ammons and the Monday Struggle. The Monday Struggle, uh, one of the basic boogie styles. Uh, uh, and by the way, uh, we're still taking calls at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. And as uh, it's New Year's Eve, so heck, guys, you can call back. Uh, because Liz is really, she's got a bunch of trivia questions here that we we kind of want to get to, <laughs> so we keep running out of time because uh, it's just been so it's been so busy. It's just wonderful to have you calling. Uh, but we'll, we have time here. You know, we're about halfway through it here. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I'll get back on my uh, teaching horse. I'll put my teaching hat back on and get back on my teaching horse. So uh, the, we heard the Roland Pete uh, at the beginning of this hour. And that was a, a baseline. There are basically four basic boogie-woogie left-hand bass lines. So a boogie-woogie is made of certain components. Uh, and boogie-woogie, by the way, is it's, uh, it's considered a past genre it's a, a, or a dead genre. It's, there's nothing new being done in boogie-woogie. Uh, much like bluegrass, much like a lot of genres. Uh, classical music, there's, classical music is a dead genre. It's all dead. It's all been done. What it means is not that it's no good. What the dead genre means is there's nothing new being done. In other words, it's all been perfected. You haven't, you, you can't write classical music and not do something that Mozart hasn't already done, or Beethoven, or whatever. Um, in boogie woogie, you can't really do any. You can't do anything that either Pete Johnson or Albert Ammons or Mead Lux Lewis hasn't already done, or uh, Clarence Pinetop Smith. So we just heard the uh, the Monday struggle, and the Monday struggle was based on a baseline called the Monday Struggle. And I mean, I can't demonstrate it, but the first, uh, the first uh, boogie we heard at the top of this hour was the Roland Pete. And the Roland Pete is one of the four basics. First, we have the basic boogie. And then the Roland Pete's a little different. It's, uh, it's actually a little bit simpler. Um, and then Albert Ammons... I mean, obviously, Pete Johnson did the Roland Pete. And also, the Roland Pete has a a right-hand uh, roll. It's called a roll that he put with that. And and it's just... By that, that right-hand roll that Roland Pete, that he Pete Johnson did in the Roland Pete has been used by everybody. Albert Ammons came up with the Monday Struggle. And then um, Clarence Pinetop Smith in the... Pine Top's Boogie Woogie, which you'll hear kind of towards the end of this hour, was similar to the Monday Struggle. He used some different notes, but he added a, a completely different role that nobody had done before. Actually, Clarence Pine Top Smith only, I think he only wrote one song. I mean, he probably played a lot of stuff, but he's only credited with one song called the Pine Top's Boogie Woogie. But it was so uh, influential in terms of the, the Pine Top role, uh, which was different, different than the, uh, the Roland Pete role. So that that was important. That's why Pine Top Smith gets in there with, um, you know, with the top three with 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 Pete Johnson and Albert Ammons and Mead Lux Lewis, as uh, and they did a concert. Uh, they the three of them did a triple grand piano boogie woogie concert at Carnegie Hall, and I think it was in 1925. Well, would that have been something to see? <laughs> wow, you want to talk about the great boogie woogieers of all time? Um, 
But the boogie woogie consists of a baseline. So you have to select one of them, and there are lots and lots of variations. So if people are listening and saying, "Oh no, there's, oh, you can do this," and yeah, there's a lots of there's a lot of variations. Um, there's a Mead Lux list called the Boogie Woogie Stomp, which has a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, that gets to the point where I, I can't play that. That's too that's too hard for me. Uh, I, I don't have, my hands aren't big enough to play that. Number one, um, but uh, there's the. Uh, you know, Albert Evans did the the uh, Monday struggle, and and what he was doing with those trills, uh, those were not necessarily unique, but they're part of what they do. So, uh, in a boogie woogie, you have the baseline. You select a baseline. What kind of baseline do you want to use in your left hand? Okay, and that's a regular thing. It's eight to the bar, which means it's one and two and three and four and da 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 da, da one and two. It's so eight 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 notes, and then you have what you call Pick up and put downs. Da 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 da. That's a that's a pick up and put down. You hear that all the time. Da 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 da. That's a pick up and put down. And then you have these two bar patterns. Did it even bad? Did even bad? Did and did and did do 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 do. That is a rolling peat. That's a two bar pattern. So da 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 da. Did it did and did do 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 do. Da 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 da. That's a pick up and put down combined with a two bar pattern, very common one, and then you'd be playing that over your over your baseline, and uh, that's and then there's a there is a what's called a turnaround, and a turnaround is I don't want to explain all the music, but that's kind of how you wrap up the chorus. The chorus is twelve bars, and that's why we call it it's a twelve bar boogie woogie, which is a twelve bar boogie woogie blues. Uh, blues can be eight bars or sixteen bars, but boogie woogie is a twelve bar. So if it's a twelve bar, it's actually called a boogie. So um, the boogie, the boogies are all twelve bars, and the turnaround is in a, in a boogie woogie composition. Uh, you have what's called a signature turnaround. The signature turnaround is the the way you end the phrase most of the time, probably. Oh, I won't say 50% of the time, but at least 40% of the time. And then you have some others that are mixed in in there. But one that you come back to a lot is called the signature turnaround. So you have your basic, your baseline, whichever one that is. <laughs> then you have your pickup and put downs along with your two-bar patterns and your signature turnaround. And then you, you have what's called a boogie-woogie chorus, a 12-bar boogie-woogie chorus. Um, and that's the basic structure of a boogie-woogie. And the three of those fellas did uh, pretty much everything that was done, that ever could be done. But it's highly influential. Uh, every pianist that I've ever heard in rock and roll from the uh, classic rock days, I'm talking about from the Rolling Stones, uh, Ian Stewart, the first pianist with the Rolling Stones, big, big boogie-woogie guy. Um, uh, if you've ever heard the song, um, oh, uh, what's this? Oh, I, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. So it starts up. He's doing a rolling Pete right there. That is straight. He's just told that's a straight rolling Pete. That that lick, the, that roll that he takes at the very beginning of that song of uh, Billy Preston, nothing from nothing. That's a that's a rolling Pete. That's a rolling Pete uh, roll, uh, right hand roll. And then I, I was listening to uh, an interview 
with Christy McVie from Fleetwood Mac. And she, had, of course, she's passed away now, uh, sadly, uh, recently. Um, but the way she got into Fleetwood Mac, believe it or not, is uh, she first played a band called Chicken Shack, uh, which was kind of a rock and blues band. And they, she was invited to play in Chicken Shack. She was actually a window dresser in, in a department store. And somebody in Chicken Shack knew her and saw her there and said, hey, you know how to play the blues. And she said, no, nah, I really don't. I I I just know the sheet music. She's you know she could read sheet music and was buying you know you could buy stuff at the store. You still can buy the sheet music to a lot of these old tunes. It's nothing like the way you buy sheet music for a blues tune. That's like a, a um, I don't know uh, uh, any old blues song like Memphis Blues or or, or St. Louis Blues or the Jelly Roll Blues. They're, they're not. <laughs> That sheet music is nothing. If you just play the sheet music, you're not going to sound anything like Jelly Roll Morton, I guarantee you. There's no way to say it, sound like Jelly Roll Morton except be Jelly Roll Morton. I believe you. I've tried. <laughs> and I just, I, I have listened to it over and over again. And it's just, I don't have the bounce. I just, I don't have what he has. It's, he had an understanding of it. Okay, but she knew how to play those. And they said, oh, you know. So she knew a little bit about blues and boogie woogie. And then and they invited her into the band, and here she, you know, she could play a little. And you still hear some of those, some of those boogie patterns, those basic boogie patterns that she learned from sheet music. I don't think she ever had a course in it, uh, you know, uh, really a, an education formally in in studying boogie woogie. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have have learned that, um, but I didn't learn it early in life either. I mean, I when I was first playing. You know, as a young 17, 18 year old out touring in in, in the upper Midwest uh, before I went to Seattle, I I, I was just kind of hacking at it too. I didn't, I kind of knew some stuff, but I was stabbing at it, not really sure what I was doing. Kind of heard some stuff and was trying to repeat it. I, I didn't really have an education in it uh, at the time, but uh, eventually, eventually got that sort of formal. Um, at least for myself, um, introductions to to the the real basics of it, and but that's that's what it's made out of. Those those are the components, and even just using a few of those has you know brought a lot of people you know quite a bit of success. I mean, you don't have to use them all. You don't have to play like Pete Johnson or Mead Lux Lewis to use some of those techniques and, uh, you know, have quite a bit of success with it. Uh, as, as, as you know, I mean, Fleetwood Mac was not a blues band. <laughs> well, they were a blues band before uh, Stevie Nicks and Christy McVie, you know, the, and uh, Lin, uh, Lindsey Buckingham and, and Stevie Nicks came along and joined uh, Christy and... and uh, John McVie and Fleet, uh, Mick Fleetwood, but you know, obviously, in the days of of Peter Green, uh, the Fleetwood Mac was very much a blues band, and and came out of the traditions of you know John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, and all of the English uh, blues that they the, the British were sort of just spitting back at us, uh, especially the guitar stuff. Now, I don't, I, I didn't have time in this program. To just there's not enough time as it is, but 
you could do this whole program with guitar nothing but guitar players you know i mean from you know uh uh mississippi fred mcdowell to uh, muddy waters a howlin wolf and uh uh, Hound Dog Taylor and uh, Robert Johnson and uh, it, it's it, the list go, it could go on and on and on. Lead Belly, uh, just the list would just go on and on of great, you know, African American blues players, and there would be you could do that with guitarists, you could do it with probably harmonica players. You got Little Walter. Uh, Slim, uh, 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 Slim Harpo, uh, a million of them. Sunny uh, 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 Boy Williamson, uh, just tons of them that, that you could go with it. And as to the way the blues and all of the stuff that we've listened to as part of our American culture, and I appreciate uh, Steve's remarks. It, it is our American culture, and, and we sh- we also need not to sort it out and say, but we you know say, oh, this is mine and this was theirs. It's all of ours, and that's what we need to do. I think that's a good point. We need to start sharing it and say it's all of ours, because otherwise we're just joining the people, the other people that say, uh, you know, oh, we we built this country. Yeah, we uh, the uh, the rich white people built this country. No, we all built this country, and that's sort of the the, the, the lesson here. Uh, we're going to get in here to Honky Tonk Train by Mead Lux Lewis, which is a blues in G. A boogie woogie G.
And that was the, uh, the great Mead Lux Lewis and his honky-tonk train in the key of G. And I really think that sounds like a, I mean, that's a honky-tonk train, all right? He's really got the, the tone poetry going there, the tone poem sound of, of a train. It does, you know, sounds like a train, just like you can make a, a harmonica sound like a train whistle. Um, there were, uh, you can do the same thing, and, and I think the honky tonk train there. That, that's uh, by the way, uh, I, I think Emerson Lake and Palmer did a uh, a version of this song too of honky tonk train. It's a, uh, a lot of fun to play. Uh, um, not as hard as it sounds, um, uh, but you know it takes a, a little bit of coordination. So I think the um, a lot of the. Um, What's called the three against four, or the the eighth note, or the, sorry, the quarter note triplets in there, don 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 against the, you know, against the regular, uh, and that's a basic boogie. He's just doing a basic boogie bass in the key of G. Uh, so that the bass is not that complicated in that particular. It's the right hand that's the right hand that's more uh, uh, challenging. But but not not terrible if you have a little experience. You have to have a little bit of a reach. Uh, a lot of these chords that they grab, you're squeezing down, you know, multiple notes with, for sure with your thumb, uh, and that's a technique that, uh, well, you learn as you get better. Um, you have to be able to play two notes that are right next to each other with your thumb, so you you get, say, a C and a D and an F sharp. You say put a C and a D with your thumb, and then you got your index finger to play an F sharp, your middle finger to play an A. And then you can get your little finger way up to play the t- the D above that, and you got a, you got a, a, a widespread D seven chord, and that's probably that's one of the things that exists in that particular uh, particular piece. That's uh, yeah, interesting, fun, and all of it's fun to learn. Uh, very much a great deal of fun to learn. Um, uh, Callers who want to play the trivia game, we're, um, you know, we're getting towards a little bit, you know, and next hour, uh, it'll be Dixieland, and, uh, but if you want to play the trivia game, Liz has got lots of questions for you that we, she, she got me this, um, uh, this pack of uh, trivia cards, and they are the, <laughs> smack that weirdest questions, honestly, they, they, I thought they were going to be. Um, I thought they were. <laughs> I thought they were going to be easy, but they're rather perplexing. And they're just true false. Um, but they do kind of put you in a a funny position uh, of. But they're funny. To, they're interesting to answer. Uh, and I think you know you, you have if you have reasoning, you can probably get the right answer. Um, like the, for instance, the one that we did with was it Bob. And said that uh, was was Henry VIII playing croquet when Anne Boleyn was being executed. Now the answer was tennis, and and that one, if you kept up with the news uh, in the last couple of years, I think they found some old leather tennis balls of Henry VIII in the I don't know somewhere in the attic and. <laughs> I don't know where in the Tower of London. <laughs> oh, right, it's my old, my old tennis racket's up there. Oh, left these up here. Uh, what is a, what does an old leather tennis ball look like? 
I mean, that's just got to be gross, right? It's a dried up old something. But they played on grass courts, right? They always tennis was on grass courts. I mean, I mean, I think that's what Wimbledon is, right? It's all grass. Uh, maybe, I, maybe all of the professional courts are are grass. I don't know. I, I'm I'm I haven't played tennis since I was about fifteen. And I never was very good. I never had an eye for much of anything. You know. Never had an eye for baseball, or just my eyes were never good enough for that. Um, I always wa- wanted to play and wanted to hit. I got. I think in two years of playing baseball, I was able to. I got three hits, or was it two? Um, and they were lucky. I just. I just swung away and happened to hit a, you know, a pounder just way over the. But not. Tennis, no, wasn't too good at that. Um, but yeah, Henry VIII was playing tennis when Anne Boleyn was being. Uh, sad, sad story, uh, you know. There was a book called The Other Boleyn, wasn't it? It was about her sister. But uh, Henry, you know, he wanted uh, he wanted a son, and so uh, how many? By the way, here's a trivia. How many wives did Henry VIII have? Liz, how many do you have? The six wives of Henry. If you if you if you bought Rick Wakeman's Six Wives of the Henry VIII album, of course we all know that. Which, uh, by the way, I, I did not think was Rick Wakeman's best uh, work. But had six wives. How many of them were beheaded? How many? <laughs> well, at least one, right? <laughs> Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn, and that was his third wife. And uh, no, no, yeah, it was his third wife. Was it? Or was it his second? Uh, it was, no, it's. It, I think it was his second. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to my. And his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, nineteen-year-old Catherine Howard. His, she was uh, beheaded for messing around with the. Um, with the uh, uh, some administrator, uh, some palace administrator, they got caught, and he he was he was uh, rudely rudely dealt with, and she was only beheaded. But in those days, in, you know, in the 16th century, they they had the axe man, right? Oh, this is very charming New Year's Eve talk. But you had, if you had you had to tip him well, to make sure you didn't. Didn't drink too much before, you know, put it to you. It kind of missed a little bit. A few of them had to get, uh, get it a couple of times. But, yeah, Anne Boleyn and, and Catherine Howard were the two. Um, Catherine of Barragon was his first wife. Jane Seymour, I did, I think, did give birth to a uh, sickly son. And then uh, Anne of Cleves, uh, I think was from Germany, uh, not an attraction there. They they just never hit it off. Um, Henry said she smelled bad. <laughs> no kidding. What Henry with his festering sores on his legs said she smelled bad. Huh? Yeah, she was number four, and then uh, uh, Catherine Howard's number five, and then uh, I think he ended up with uh, uh, Catherine Parr. That last one, as I recall. Anyway, enough about him and his and his croquette. Uh, games. Um, oh, this all of this came from uh, all, all this came from from, from Boogie Woogie. 
Well, I've covered the uh, the, the basics of, of the boogie woogie, which is, um, you know, we have the uh, the basic, whichever baseline you want to choose, a basic, or it's, you could have the basic, choose the roll and beat. Oh, there's one called the death ray boogie, which is interesting that a death ray boogie came, was invented in, you know, 1922. By 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 the way, by Pete Johnson. Pete Johnson invented both the Roland Pete and the Death Ray Boogie. Albert Ammons invented the Monday Struggle, and um, that's it. I think that's that's the four. Yeah, yeah. The two by Pete Johnson, the one by Albert Ammons, and the Basic. Oh no, there was a oh that's and then Pine Top Smith, uh, Clarence Pine Top Smith came along and he did the. It was kind of a variation on the Monday struggle. I'm going to come up and hear Pine Tops. Uh, he calls it the Pine Top struggle, but it's most commonly known as Pine Tops uh, Boogie Woogie. Very important right hand roll uh, that had not been done before, and it's kind of a descending third. It was not done before. And if you hear it, you'll, you'll, it's very distinctive. Um, uh, by the way, most boogie woogies do not have lyrics, uh, but we, the two that I have on this hour, Roland Pete did have a lyric. Pete Johnson did tend to sing. He sang uh, Roland Pete. He sang a one called Rebecca, which was the one called Rebecca is kind of a death ray boogie with words. It was the death ray boogie with lyrics. And uh, uh, the Roland Pete has lyrics, and then Pine Tops Boogie Woogie d- uh, does have does have some lyrics here. We're, we're coming up to in in just a few minutes. Uh, so, um, and then after that, we will be going into the third hour and welcoming uh, your calls at seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three. Nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three WCPT. By the way, uh, Clarence Pine Top Smith, like as I said, he recorded this one in nineteen twenty eight. Uh, it was his last recording because he was uh, shot in a bar in uh, nineteen twenty nine and never made another recording. Uh, although I, I think there was one that he was working on and planning to record, but we never got to hear it because he uh, he he didn't make it. Uh, he wasn't around, and uh, I, I think those places were kind of a bit dangerous. And here we go. This is Pine Tops Struggle, Pine Tops Boogie Boogie, right here.
And when I say get it, everybody do a boogie-woogie. Hold yourself now. Boogie-woogie. Now that's what I'm talking about. this time, y'all get ready to stop, and when I say stop, don't move, when I say get it, everybody mess around, hold yourself, mess around, now that's what I'm talking about.
Butter and Eggman. That's uh, Percy Venable tune from 1926. Uh, that was a, recorded by Bessie Smith. Uh, considered a, a great Dixieland jazz standard. Uh, just uh, by the way, that is uh, Chet Bogan's Wolverine Jazz Band or Yas Band, Yas Band, um, featuring uh, well, among others, my dad on Jerry Richardson on trombone, uh, Chet Bogan on cornet, uh, Wally Trianco on uh, clarinet. Steve Zell, uh, let's see, Steve Zell on um, banjo, Tony Peter on drums. Um, oh, and Tommy Saunders, Tommy Saunders on tuba. The uh, and of course I can't leave out Dixie Bell, who was uh, also known as Elma Tranianco, who just passed away. Uh, at the age of 96 in 2017. Uh, this band out of the uh, city of Detroit, where my dad played for many, many years. Uh, so a tribute to dad this hour uh, with the uh, Czech Bogans Wolverine Jazz, or Yass band. The word jazz was actually spelled J-A-S-S originally, or Yass, so it's French. Um was considered it was i think it was pronounced yasbo yasbo meaning kind of this syncopated rhythm again so it's all coming out of new orleans um so a, a dixieland band a standard dixieland instrumentation uh would be uh, a cornet not a trumpet a cornet is a, a larger bore it's, it's like a trumpet larger bore so a squattier horn um and then there would be uh, the, the other instruments would be clarinet, not a saxophone, clarinet, uh, trombone, uh, one tenor trombone. And um, they had tuba. The Dixieland bands had tubas, not stand-up basses. Uh, stand-up bass only came in to... Um, came into to, to Vogue when the microphone the, it needed to be mic'd so um, stand up bass only came up when there were microphones the tuba is much louder the tuba by the way it, it was an easy thing to play because it's a B flat instrument and um, people who play trumpet can also play tuba and that's why you'll see that uh, uh, actually Tommy Saunders the tuba player in this band was quite quite a good trumpet player he plays trumpet or tuba like he plays a trumpet so um there's that one um okay so we have a contestant i think jim in chicago wants to play trivia with liz so let's turn it over yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just want to say so long to 2023. What a trivia question. Thanks, Paul. Good. <laughs> okay. Okay, Jim. I'm going to let Liz uh, take the microphone and do the trivia questions with you. Okay, go ahead. All right. Okay, some of these are That's all right. So am I. So don't worry about it. Go ahead. Before the Romans went into battle, they would consult sacred chickens to see if the gods were on their side. True or false? That's got to be true. 
you're right. If the chickens ate food, it was a good day for battle. Give me one word, Jerry. That'll be it. That's my... I'll end with it, guys. Good enough. What's that one? Give me one more quick one. Okay. The passengers of the first hot air balloon ride in 1783 were a cow, chicken, and rabbit. The, the, the people on the balloon, I mean, the animals on the balloon? The first hot air balloon ride. They, they put three animals on they put three animals. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be true, too. That's true. I'll go with true there. Well, it's false. There was a duck, a sheep, oh, a rooster. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it was 50 50. Happy New Year, Jim. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, wait, we'll, give you, we'll give you one more, Jim. Give, give him another one so he can, get, he can try to go two out of three. Okay. Aw. Right. Okay. Um, well, why don't you read, let's read one for me. Why don't you get, give me some? I'll try to find one I haven't asked you already. <laughs> okay. Oh, I think you're going to answer this one. This is an easy one for you, I think. The English king, Henry II, had a jester called Roland Lefarter. Roland Lefarter? Um, I'll say true. It is true. <laughs> he would entertain the king by farting. Oh, well, that, he could have been on the Stephanie Miller show. <laughs> he would be, yeah, that would be, that'd be perfect for him. All right. Give me another one. Oh, you want another one? Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. We'll do these for a while until we get colored. I don't think I've asked you this one. A Victorian eccentric Dr. William Buckland ate the mummified heart of King Louis the Fourteenth. Mummified heart. Say this one again. Okay. Victorian eccentric Dr. William Buckland ate the mummified heart of King Louis the Fourteenth. I'm going to say that is the mummified number. Um, I'll say true. You're right, it is true. But he also ate elephant trunks and drank bat urine. Oh, wow. In Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, a real wolf was used to chase a character off the stage. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I, I say false. It is false. A real bear was used. A real bear was used. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. I, those are those are not easy. Let's get, let's get those. Get in the way. Get in the way. Yeah. Okay. okay. The last execution in France by guillotine took place in 1877. I. Well, 
Well, I'm going to say it's false. It is false. It took place 100 years later in 1977. No, oh, in 1977 they had a, they had a guillotine execution in France? Yep. <laughs> of, oh, okay, well, that's bizarre. All right. Okay, the phrase, mad as a hatter, came from the hat-making process. Um, mad as a hatter. Uh, I will say no. I think that's false. Or is it? No. Wait a minute. I'll say it's true. <laughs> true. Okay, it's true because they used to use the toxic substance mercury in oh. making the hats. Oh, okay. Okay. She's not giving me these answers. I mean, but no, okay. Oh, I love this one. Okay. Forgive me if I mispronounce these words. In the Middle Ages, Emiko of the Rhineland had his army follow a holy goat and goose hoping they would lead them to the Holy Land. Okay, read this one again. Ah, okay. In the Middle Ages, Emiko of the Rhineland had his army follow a, a holy goat and goose, hoping they would lead to the Holy Land. I would say true. I'm going to say true. It is true, but surprisingly, it didn't work. <laughs> no kidding. Hmm. Wow. More? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We can go. The Roman Emperor Caligula had his horse's oats mixed with flakes of his own dead skin. The Caligula had his horse's oats mixed with his own dead skin. Um, well, he was a foul. But yes, I will say yes, he did. Nope. No. It's false. Oh. They were mixed with flakes of gold. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> he, he would have been better off with his dead skin. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Well, I've, I've done pretty well. I've only gotten one. Yeah. Okay. At the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon couldn't sit on his horse to watch the battle because he had a broken leg. I don't know. I've never heard that. I don't. I think that's not true. You're right. It's false. He couldn't sit on the horse because he had hemorrhoids. That's yeah, that's right. He had. That's right. He you couldn't sit. Well, I knew they had. Okay, so you knew that. Well, I no, I didn't know that part, but I. That makes sense because they they had apparently analyzed a pair of the seat of one of Napoleon's leather battle britches. Uh, which apparently had some deposits in it, and determined that Napoleon probably had colon cancer. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I know you've never heard of this one before. Ancient Vikings were known to use ground rubber as breast implants. Ground rubber. Don't, don't. Um... Ground or as no, I don't think so. 
Okay, you're right again. It's false. The breast implant surgery wasn't performed until 1895. Right, okay. Wow, that's... There was breast implant surgery in 1895? That's what it says. All right. All right, let's try another one. Okay. Pharaoh Ramses II was issued with an Egyptian passport nearly 3,000 years after his death. Pharaoh Ramses II was issued with an Egyptian passport. I'm going to say that's true. It is true, because he was transported to France in 1976 for restoration work. He had to have a passport. passport. Okay, Queen Victoria was buried with a cast of her husband's hand. I'm going to say that one is... That would be Prince Albert, right? It doesn't say. Well, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Cast of his hand. Yeah. Uh, um, Hmm. I think yes. It is true. At her request, she was also buried with his dressing gown. Oh, okay. I want me a tick. <laughs> okay, let's do a couple more. Okay. Let's see. Cleopatra was born closer in time to the building of the first Pizza Hut restaurant than to the building of the Great Pyramid. Oh. Cleopatra was born, so she was born in the first century B.C. And was that, and the first Pizza Hut was probably about 19, what, 70-something? I'll say, yes, that's true. The Grand, the Great Pyramid, the Great Pyramid, um, I think was in about, 4,000 B.C. Yeah, I think it's true. It is true. She was born about 500 years closer. 500 years closer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's do another one. During the Ottoman Empire, the best man would hold a live turkey in his arms for the entire service to ensure prosperity for the new couple. (laughs) Say that? The best man would hold a live turkey in his arms to ensure prosperity for the new couple. No, and this is what tradition? Ottoman Empire. Oh. The Ottoman, oh. The best man would hold a live turkey in his hand. Um, No, you can't hold a live turkey in your hand. I don't (laughs) think you can, no. For the whole whole service? You're right. It wasn't, it was never a tradition. The first chocolate to be eaten in outer space was a Mars bar. Uh, The first chocolate to be eaten in outer space was a Mars bar. Um, 
I'm going to say just because of the wackiness, that's probably true. They probably sent, if they're going to eat one, they're going to send a Mars bar. Nope, it's false. It was M&M's because the astronauts oh. requested them. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Well, I missed a couple. Yeah. Frank, Frank Sinatra was buried with a bottle of whiskey tucked in his suit. I will say yes. True. It was Jack, a bottle of Jack Daniels. And speaking of which, here's Dr. Jazz. <laughs> Give me Dr. Jazz Now he's got what I need You bet he has oh, yeah. And when those blues bother me Dr. Jazz comes through He's got what makes me want To put on both my dancing shoes Now the more I get, the more I want to see I praise old Dr. Jazz in my dreams When those troubles bother me He's the guy I want to see Hello Central, give me Dr. Jazz That's a Joe uh, Joe King Oliver tune written in 1926. Another 1926 tune, um, Doctor Jazz. Yeah, I, that's one of my all-time favorites. That's that's a that's a standard tune, standard uh, Dixieland jazz tune. Um, yeah, I tell you a little bit about these this collection of of songs uh, that um, we've got here with the. Chet Bogan Wolverine Jazz Yas Band, spelled J A S S. They they use the old spelling. Um, in 2006, I guess it was my dad's uh, Jerry Richardson. His his second wife passed away uh, of uh, ovarian cancer. I think it was, and I guess as you do, you go through a lot of stuff in the house, and so Dad called me and said. Um, 
that he had found these cassette tapes of the the Shed Bogan band, and he 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 wanted to play them, but he did so he didn't have a, a tape recorder. I said, "Don't, don't, Dad, don't, don't, don't play those. Don't try to play those, because these have been sitting in his basement since what 1983, I think is." These were co- recorded at uh, a restaurant called The Lido. The Lido on the lake. It's on Lake St. Clair. I've never been there. Uh, it's, I think it's still there. But, you know, 2006, that's the 1983, that's 23 years that these cassette tapes have been sitting in his basement. And who knows what kind of humidity things are going on. And also, I said, no, don't don't try to play them. I, I thought what's going to happen is he's going to put the first thing he's going to do is it's going to eat the tape, right? The tape will get, the tape will get uh, stuck, and who knows what kind of recorder he's trying to play it on. So I said, send them to me. And uh, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Dale Martin, who was on the program last week at this hour, uh, I said, we got to wind, let's wind these carefully and then see if we can, you know, first of all, wind them. You have to wind them all the way through to make sure there's no sticky spots in them that are going to get hung up while you're trying to play it. And uh, so we wound the, wound the tapes and made sure they, play, they wound and then we started playing them and then started converting them on to CD. And... Uh, So I, I think we we got of these tapes. I don't can't remember how many there were, uh, but we got four or no, we got two double CD albums out of them. Um, the one double CD was the was live at the Lido on the Lake. We had and we made them a companion set. We had the same album cover. We made a you know, CD. Same cover. One was blue, and that was the live at the Lido on the Lake. And then there was another, uh, another companion that was at the Detroit Montreux Jazz Festival that was in 1983, and that was the red covered one. They had the same design and everything. But that's how we found these particular tunes, and looked all over, and there. There is no, there are no other recordings of this, of this concert. So uh, there are some, there are you can find some Chet Bogan and the Wolverines, jazz band, uh, around on on Amazon. Uh, there's a there's an LP. Uh, the LP does not feature my dad. Doesn't feature Jerry Rich. The, the other the trombone player on that LP was Stu Sanders, uh, who who actually played with the chess band for a number of years before passing away. And I think that's why my, my, my dad took over when Stu passed away. Um, I think that the three great, uh, jazz trombone players in Detroit were, uh, were my dad, Jerry Richardson, uh, Stu Sanders and Jimmy Wilkins were the, the jazz guys. Uh, but when Stu passed away, my dad took over with Chet's band and, uh, I think the band played for, uh, well, they were at the Lido for 17 years, I think. So Dad was in probably for about half of that time. Uh, and uh, quite a run, very popular. 
and then played at the the Detroit uh, Mantra Jazz Festival. I think that's how we heard it, Hart Plaza. Uh, so there's uh, a lot there, and we'll get to a couple more of those songs. What do we got for trivia? Any more? Let's do a couple more trivia. Okay, at the Battle of Pelusium in 525 B.C., the Persians held up live cats and pictures of cats to stop the Egyptians from shooting arrows. I'll say that is true. Yeah, it is is true. Cats were sacred to the Egyptians who didn't dare hurt them. You're too smart for these. <laughs> They're weird questions. They are weird. Uh, before composing, Beethoven would often dip his head in cold water. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that, so I'm going to say that's true. Yep. Supposedly to refresh and stimulate him. Okay. Another one? Yep. History's shortest war was between England and Zanzibar. England and Zanzibar. Yeah, I think that's a, that would be a pretty short war. That's true. It lasted a whole 38 minutes in 1896. <laughs> 38 minutes? Yeah. Okay. Dolly the cloned sheep had three different mothers. Well, I remember that. Um, is that is that true? <laughs> Wait, no, <laughs> that can't be true. No. Is that your final answer? No, I, I don't. That can't be true. It is true. It is true. Okay. Finally, you missed one. <laughs> Uh, one provided the egg, another the DNA, and another carried the cloned embryo. Oh, right. The 13th century king of England, Henry III, kept a giraffe at his palace. Uh, Henry the Third. I'll say no. He didn't. You're right. It was a polar bear. Oh boy. Okay. Yep. Another one. Okay. Okay. On pirate ships in Georgian times. If a pirate needed a limb amputated, it was sawn off by the ship's carpenter. Yeah, I think that's true. You're right. He was the only one that had a yeah, saw. Had a saw, yeah. <laughs> the 
Vikings would burn to death all of the crew members of any ship that surrendered during battle. Would burn to death? Mm-hmm. Um, all the crew members. Boy, uh, I guess that sounds outrageous enough to be true. No, it's false because there are records, few oh. records of Vikings actually surrendering in battle. Oh, okay. I didn't. I didn't quite understand that question. So read the question again. Oh. Vikings would burn to death all the crew members of any ship that surrendered during battle. Oh well, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Okay, yeah, I was wrong. Sorry. Uh, okay. In medieval England, a punishment for murder involved being placed in a sack along with a wolf, a snake, and a cat. In medieval England, a punishment for murder involved being placed in a sack along with a wolf, a snake, and a cat. I don't believe that. It's false. But they did capital punishment was common back then. They didn't do that. That would be a hell of a sack. <laughs> really. All right, another one? Okay. Belgium issued the first beer-flavored stamps in 2013. No, I disagree. They didn't. No, they didn't. They were chocolate-flavored. Okay, the ancient Celts used mistletoe to increase the fertility of sheep. The ancient who? Am I pronouncing it wrong? I don't know. Celts. Celt? Oh, the Celts. Yeah. Use mistletoe to increase. No, I don't. I don't believe that. It's true. Oh. And it was sold to bring a lambful spring. Hmm. Lambful. Wow. They used mistletoe, and that maybe that's where we got the Christmas tradition of put mistletoe over the doorway. Mistletoe is a pernicious weed. Yeah, it's, it can be very... Isn't it poisonous, too? Mm, I don't know, but it's, it's a parasite that ruins trees. It just chokes trees to death. There's a lot of mistletoe and holly in... Uh, where did, was it? In North Carolina, all over the trees on the side of the uh, freeway. Hmm. There was mistletoe all over the place. Just ruining those trees. Oh, I got one for you. All right. 
William the Conqueror's obese body exploded at his funeral. <laughs> did did he play drums in Spinal Tap or something? <laughs> I, I, is is obese body exploded at his funeral? No, I don't believe. How could it? True. It did. <laughs> because. Oh, it was so build up of gases oh, in his yeah, stomach. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's kind of like the whales on the beach. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the whales on the beach. They. Oh, yeah, that's true. You can. That happens. Yeah, the body gets bloated, and I guess it can. Yeah, it can rip open mm-hmm. from uh, the gas. I guess that's true. I. I just was thinking. I was say th- I was sort of like it exploded like the drummer in Spinal Tap. No, I didn't. Okay, dentists in Georgian era replaced missing teeth with teeth taken from dead soldiers on battlefields. I'm going to say yes. It is true, and they also extracted teeth from poor children. Oh, okay, well, okay. Mm. I think they're still doing that. Let's see another one. Okay. In ancient Egypt, fathers could sell their sons into slavery, but only for a maximum of five years. I think that's true. No, it's false. There was oh. no limit, no time. Limit. Oh, no limit. Oh, well, that's that's a bit of a cheater one. Okay. Okay, the phrase spilling the beans came from ancient Rome. Spilling, uh, I'm just gonna, I don't know, but I'm going to guess yes. False. It came from ancient Greece when, <laughs> oh, when they used beans for voting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And so they, this election was rigged. Somebody spilled the beans. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, it's, I think that's that's probably what on then. Is that okay? Speaking of cakewalkers, this is a huge. Uh, a real New Orleans number and it talks all about the cakewalkers may come the cakewalkers may go but I got a couple I want to tell you about a couple I know and this would be the cakewalking babies from home Cakewalkers may go, but I want to tell you about a couple I know. I step and pair, never there. But when it comes to business, not a soul can compare. Here they come. Look at them demonstrating, going some. Ain't they sick to play talk in the town? Easing around, picking them up and laying them down. Dancing fool, ain't they devastating? 
the cakewalking babies from home. Hi, step and pair, debonair. When it comes to business, not a soul can compare. Dancing fools, that's where the that's where the phrase comes from. Dancing fools from cakewalkers. So it goes all the way back. The tradition just cycles around. Uh, but that was. Uh, I wonder if there's. I never thought to look on YouTube to see if there's any uh, cakewalker cakewalking demonstrations. We'll have to check that out. I, I just thought of that. I've never seen anybody cakewalking. I only know it. By the way, do you know who the uh, the mo- the modern cakewalking hero of all time is? Who can think of this? Is a a guy who uh, does high stepping, sway back. You know, leaning in real back, uh, far back. Sings in kind of a faux black accent. Um, one of the most popular singers in the rock and roll industry has been for the last 62 years. Any guesses? Who do you think? Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger is a cakewalker. And, uh, of course, the Rolling Stones, a lot of blues, black blues influence. Um, Keith Richards plays a uh, open G, open tuning G, a guitar, his guitar is an open G tuning, uh, which is what was originally what well, blacks played slide guitar with they played slide they they used a beef bone to um, you know to before they had a, a, a metal slide or a glass slide but they use a, a bone and they would tune the guitar in and, and it, it would be just a few strings four or five strings you know, uh, Keith Richards only uses five strings you don't need that low string to play slide but Keith Richards doesn't really play slide um, he uh he kind of plays, uh, he, he, but he does. He plays slide with his fingers, so his his fretting. You you can't play, by the way. No matter how you try, if you don't tune your guitar in the same way that Keith Richards tunes his guitar, you'll never sound like the Rolling Stones. And he said that is that you can play the same chords and so on, but you'll never get it to sound exactly right unless you play it the way he plays it. Um, yeah. Mick Jagger, big, big cakewalker, big cakewalking baby. And, you know, sings in that kind of funny accent that's British, but it's, you know, he's trying to sing like a, in a southern black American dialect. So he gets that, that result that he does. And they do sing kind of a lot of of American style songs, actually. The Rolling, the Rolling Stones do. Um, but yeah, Dixieland band, Dixieland jazz, a uh, favorite. Um, and another line of music, you know, we had cakewalk, we had ragtime, and then we had blues. We had the blues era. Um, like I guess I with W. C. Handy and. Uh, and Jelly Roll Morton, and then went into the boogie woogie. That was kind of that direction, and then the the 
other direction was the Dixieland and jazz directions. You know, we went into the big band, Duke Ellington and so on. Uh, so quite a number of influences and, and directions in which, in which music went in those days. I, I, I have the impression that, um, you know, music has become less diversified in the last, well, in the last 40 years, for sure. Uh, and, and maybe that's because of the record business, the recording business, and the um, it, it being all, a lot about money and what's, what they're willing to sell or what they're willing to try to sell so that people are not, are not so interested in uh, in trying to go in different directions, but when we think about it, rap has been around. Rap's been with us for you know forty years, right? Rap has been uh, rap was around in the eighties. Wasn't break dancing going? Break dancing and rap was going in the eighties. So that's that's been going. Rap's been with us for forty years. Rap is not. A syncopated at all. Well, I suppose you could say the 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 rapping line could be syncopated in some ways. That the uh, accents of the syllables of the words is a little different, but um, you don't see that that genre becoming more diversified. Um, and then the other popular genre I'm not sure um, but things are becoming more diverse I think now if you look at in the classic rock era uh, I think band, bands were doing everything they could not to sound like one another um, you know if you, if you sounded like somebody else you just weren't gonna it just was not cool it, that's and not something that was uh, it was frowned upon and it was just like and you and you sound it come off like a copycat um, if, if you listen it's interesting to to listen to American pop music of the 60s um, well, let's say okay you listen to a, a, an artist like like remember Ricky Nelson he was more of a country artist. I mean, kind of, I, I wouldn't call it country rock, but if you listen to the guitar playing, is all very kind of country sounding. It's a, kind of a major pentatonic sound. It's not really blues. It isn't until, well, I, I think probably until people heard, well, Jimi Hendrix was probably the only American that was playing blues. Uh, and then, you know, you had uh, the British, you'd have to say Eric Clapton, um, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck were, this was, these were the guitarists, you know, in the, um, in the Yardbirds, who all went on to, you know, play, play blues guitar. But they got their influences from... You know, black, the original black players of America, I mean, Albert King. Albert King was probably the most, 
influential influential on all of them was Albert King, who, by the way, played his guitar upside down and backwards. He played left-handed. He just flipped the guitar upside down and played it the other way so that the higher-sounding strings were on top and the lower... How, how he did it. Everything was like a mirror image and upside down. But he developed that whole bending... Uh, that that bending style was what Albert King was doing. And Albert King was born a hundred years ago. And he was born in 19, or, yeah, 1923. Um, so, so a, a lot of influences. And so then when the British, you know, they were listening to American records, uh, that's what they went to and, and found those blues records and started trying to to copy those and then yeah spit it right back to us and, and suddenly because it came from like white guys that came from England right it's we were blown away by it whereas it was in our it was on our own backyard all along um but we had you know we had our uh, our social and racial uh difficulties with it you know black musicians were the ones who were Smoking the evil cannabis, the the marijuana, you know, it was all kind of a a black thing, and and that wasn't for clean white kids, and that's kind of why that was kind of shunned upon, or shunned uh, or looked down upon, as it was perceived to be. But you know, cannabis was only outlawed in 1938. It was it was outlawed under the opium. Act, 1938, that outlawed opium. Because even during, believe it or not, even during uh, prohibition of alcohol, uh, you could. It was legal to have uh, morphine. And uh, there's some. In, there's a, a couple of interesting. There one in particular, uh, William Faulkner stories about. about it's called uh, Uncle Willie. That's my favorite William. One of my favorite William Faulkner stories, where the kids used to go. This was in the 1920s. They used to, they used to go to town and uh, they play baseball, and then they go to Uncle Willie's uh, pharmacy, and Uncle Willie would give them a, whoever the winning team was a prize, and then they'd sit around and watch Uncle Willie shoot up his, you know, heat up his morphine and shoot up, and it was it was legal. It was just considered uh, wrong. It, it was during prohibition, so. Anyway, we are coming to the end of our program on the foundations of American music. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something. Um, and I have certainly enjoyed teaching uh, music. And it's it's a little hard on the radio without instruments. But, you know, we got some demonstration records here. And that gives you an idea. And it's New Year's Eve. So you're probably going to be listening to music and it's something to talk about. Um, our American culture is a great one. And with that in mind, I want to wish you a happy new year from kitchen table progressive and all the good people at WCPT AM eight twenty Chicago's progressive talk. And here we go with the saints go marching in.
Thank you. What a fantastic crowd. Wally Carnianco, Jerry Richardson, Howard Benedict, Steve Zell, Tony Pierre, Chet Bogan. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a crowd. The preceding program, The Kitchen Table Progressives, was sponsored by The Kitchen Table Progressives and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management.